HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Levo. Simple, potent, at-home herbal infusions at the push of a button. Learn more at levooil.com and feed your enthusiasm. That's L-E-V-O-O-I-L dot com. there and welcome to the Feed Feed Podcast. I am your guest host this week, Alexa Santos. I am a food editor at the actual Feed Feed, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source for what to cook, bake, eat, and drink. On this season of the Feed Feed Podcast, we are doing a special series called What's on Your Table. Each episode, I will be taking a look at a specific country, region, or people and talking to a few members of the Feed Feed community about the food, recipes, ingredients, and flavors that make up the dishes that are always on their tables. Today, we are spotlighting Black women in food and entertainment, and I'm joined by two amazing guests who I admire oh so much. We have Lonnie Halliday, a Brooklyn-based food artist, baker, mom, founder, and owner of Brutus Bake Shop, a gluten-free cake and pastry company. Lonnie's work, much like her own story, is all about trial and error, learning from mistakes, leading with love, and baking for yourself. From London to New York, Lonnie has shared her craft as a gluten-intolerant, professionally trained pastry chef with lovers of baked goods around the world. Her creations captivate the eye, speak to the soul, and celebrate the messiness of life. Lonnie Halliday redefines what it means to be a traditional baker, paving the way for a new generation that is unafraid to bake outside the lines. She is recognized by leaders in food and fashion alike, including InStyle, Vogue, and most recently as the cover star of Cherry Bomb. Amazing. <laughs> I'm also joined by Mako and Lovu. Mako is an on-air host, entertainment correspondent, event host, and social media influencer. A multi-talented media personality, Mako has lent her talents to various outlets and stages, including stints as a lifestyle expert for The Wendy Williams Show, an acclaimed on-air host of Essence Now, guest host of People Now, correspondent for BET International, and MC of various prestigious galas and panels. Mako currently co-hosts Today's Deals Live, Amazon's daily shopping show. The Zimbabwe-born tastemaker has made a name for herself as the go-to woman for all things global entertainment and culture. Mako and Lani, welcome to the Feed Feed Podcast. Wow. Sure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> that was so good. Oh my, oh my gosh. Okay. 
<laughs> you guys are very impressive. I was like getting excited as I was reading. <laughs> like, wow, look at, these, look at these accolades. Thank you, you so much. Yeah, well, Mako, I was. To meet you. Yes, Mako, mm-hmm. let's start with you. So I know you were born in Zimbabwe and you came to the US, but I have no idea. Tell me, how old were you when you came? What was that whole process like? And yeah, this is kind of your early childhood story. So please tell me about that. It is. And it's so great because it was just yesterday. So I can just vividly recall it. I'm totally Mm -hmm. lying. Uh, I've been in the U.S. for over 25 years. I Mm -hmm. came here when I was nine. And you know, it's so interesting uh, what I thought the U.S. was going to be versus what it was. So to, to, get, to give you context, I grew up in Zimbabwe. I grew up in suburbia. I know that's like a huge surprise, maybe to some people, because the idea that they have of Africa is not like a lot of suburbs and people living in cities. But yeah, that's exactly what, what goes down. So I grew up in uh, suburbs and my first taste of American culture was like Dallas and Falcon Crest and the Dolly Parton show. So that's what I thought America was going to be. And then when I got here and we moved to Brooklyn in the 90s, it was a bit different. And so that was like a huge, a huge shift for me. But um, just a little bit yeah. different than Dolly Parton. <laughs> <in person. laughs> yes, yes. You can imagine when I rolled up to third grade um, at my elementary school, PS44, and I had on my cowboy boots, my cowboy, my cowboy hat, my jeans tucked into my cowboy boots and my country no. shirt. The kids were like, what is wrong with her? Why do you sound like that? So it was, it was good times, good times, good times. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Wow. I love that story. That is hilarious. I, I can relate. I have a I have a very similar story. I'm loving this, Mako. This is beautiful. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to hear it. I feel like <laughs> all immigrants have this story. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So Lonnie was born, you were born in London or what was your situation? No, no. I was I was actually born in Hawaii. And so oh. I'm I'm from the States, but very similarly, I had never been to the mainland. And I didn't know what to expect when I moved here. I was similarly aged. I was 10. I moved to uh, just a little suburb outside of Portland, Oregon, and I'd never experienced the cold. I'd never had, I mean, I probably had a pair of closed-toed shoes growing up. I don't remember that. Mm-hmm. I'd never owned a coat. And um, come first September, you know, first day at the school bus in fifth grade, I, <laughs> I, w- I showed up to school in a snowsuit. I was freezing. <laughs> And it was just like September, you know. It was probably um, like sixty degrees. Yeah, it was. Pro- it was probably like sixty-five degrees and like a little bit humid in the morning because it's you know it's like wet there in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. And I was just like, you guys, how are you? Not everyone was just in like jeans and a, like a sweater or like you know like a sweatshirt. And I was just like, I'm so cold. I was in a sweatsuit or a snowsuit rather. Oh. And people my were gosh. just like, what is up with you? Um, I was very yeah, but you were warm. You were warm. I was though, not right? warm enough. No, 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 no. I'm still not warm enough. Oh wow! Wow. Well, you've come a long way <laughs> as far as style and ability to deal with the winter. I can imagine. Um, so, Lonnie, tell me a little bit about. I mean, you said you were born in Hawaii. What was kind of like some of the traditional dishes that your family was making at home? I know you were, I mean, and when were you in London during all of that? So I'm trying to get the timeline right. And what kind of cuisine did you grow up with, really? Sure, sure. I mean, I was really, really lucky in the sense of 
when I lived in Hawaii. So Hawaii really is, you know, everyone sort of thinks as the United States as like the melting pot, right? And Hawaii really is that. And I grew up going to Baptist church as a kid. And every Sunday we would have a potluck. And in my church, I mean, it was just like a Benetton ad. It was people from every possible nation you could imagine. We had like Japanese folks and Filipino folks and white folks and black folks. And I didn't know any families also that weren't interracial families. Um, I didn't know that interracial families weren't literally what everyone was until I was like 10. Like every, I don't, I do not recall any family that I knew that had like two white parents or two black parents. Actually, no, I think one kid in the fourth grade came and he was so strange because he was like white and both of his parents were white. And I was like, Whoa, that's weird. Um, But I, you know, it was like only something that like I barely even clocked because it was so other, like I didn't even really fully have the language to be like, something's weird here. Um, But anyway, so I definitely grew up. I mean, my mom is, is South Brooklyn Italian. And my dad is a black man from Alabama. And, you know, both of my parents are tremendous cooks and everyone, I mean, I ate everything growing up. It was like lumpia, which is a traditional Filipino thing and like curried chicken wings and fried chicken and lasagna. So like it, but it was like all the things from all Mm. the places every week. And so this idea of like, one kind of thing. I mean, my mom still to this day makes lumpia every Christmas. It's like our a traditional Christmas food. So and she's Italian. <laughs> she's she actually grew up near where I live now in Brooklyn. Oh. My parents got married in Prospect Park and full circle. I, yeah. She can't understand why I live here. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's um I was very, very fortunate to have this sort of like full spectrum exposure from a very young age of like all these different tastes and flavors. And, you know, I grew up eating like at the like Manapua trucks in Hawaii and like Hawaiian shave ice and like lots of traditional um, Hawaiian things as well. So lots of different things. That is so cool. And it's so fascinating to hear about kind of the dichotomy between what you considered normal and what probably, you know, mainland American young children would consider normal. So that is really, really cool to hear about. Um, Mako, what was your kind of culinary situation when you were growing up as kind of an immigrant here? I feel like I'm imagining that scene from my big fat Greek wedding when she brings the moussaka to school and they're all like, what is that? <laughs> oh, yeah, there were times, totally that that happened several times during uh growing up here in the U.S. But what's so interesting is as Lonnie's talking, I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't think I've ever had any like kind of Hawaiian food. I think the only thing, and this is so bad, it's probably not even really Hawaiian. The Hawaiian food rolls that they have that are so sweet, those things are dangerous. But that's the closest thing that I've ever had. And I don't even think that's Hawaiian, is it? It's not, right? Hawaiian sweet rolls? Yeah. Like the bread? Oh no, yeah. The bread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is? I mean, the, the stuff you get at the grocery store, like that King David, like. Yes. I mean, oh, Hawaiian bread? Oh, yes. It, it is, but like, you know, it's like just like. Dave That's like saying are... Taco Bell is yeah. Mexican food. <laughs> it's Mexican. Well, That's what I feel like I just said. I committed like, the cardinal sin. I, I mean, I, I don't think that like that 
specific thing but it's like it's all about like it's all about kind of like where you're coming from though right so like mm. wouldn't you say that like murray's potato rolls are like a very classically like east coast thing mm. right like you would have like a lobster roll from maine you would have on like whatever like like a, a store-bought thing like that's like kind of how american is that's how the yeah. states are like just like there are yeah. some, like processed items that sort of get like entrenched through this kind of like colonization of food and like all like mm. colonization touches everything and so i mean i think that like when you're talking about like the day-to-day the la gente like something that i really associate with growing up in hawaii is like spam and like ah, the history mm. of that you know because like you would go to the manapua trucks which is like these like traditional like manapua is like it's like bao buns it's like a steam oh. it's like a bread so typically like meat like char siu pork or mm. you know spam or chicken less often but um i remember the like hot pink like char siu pork in the middle of these steamed buns but like spam wasn't uncommon but spam was like a u.s military food that sort of right. like colonized it but there are traditional wine foods like things like poi and taro and um you know things like that that, that okay. do. so so I I don't know it's like it all kind of is a matter of like how do you process and view like what is traditional is something traditional from you know like from my perspective of me growing up as a kid in the eighties or are you talking mm. about something that goes back through like pre colonization and like I think that like when you're talking about people's culinary perspectives that it's not like pretty. But it's not invalid, if you get what I get it. I get it. I get it. That is Mako, very interesting. Okay. Isn't, isn't okay. Lana sorry. So like eloquent and she like she is. really gets you to think about things. Like she's very she deep. It's so, I love talking to her. No, it's but so I love fascinating. it. Now, see, now I'm adding more stuff onto my list. Uh, okay, <laughs> so sorry to, to have us go on that. Uh, yes, uh, we got uh, an education, right? Okay, so to answer your question, the question was, what was my food experience uh, back home or growing up? Just like, yeah, I mean, what were some of your, you know, your early food memories and like the type of Mm. food that your family was preparing, you know, that you were kind of used to eating growing up? Absolutely. So we have this thing, um, we call it ischwana. It's essentially cornmeal. So think of cornmeal in like the powder format, the flour format that you see it in in the stores right now. So we take that, we add water, we take it into sort of the porridge stage, and then you keep adding more cornmeal, and then it becomes this soft yet uh, thick consistency. And so we use that, and we eat that as our staple, as our rice, and then you eat it with other vegetables, or you eat it with uh, meat. So that was like my earliest memory growing up was eating ischwala. It's like something that we would have for breakfast, not for breakfast, for porridge, porridge, we would, we would have porridge for breakfast and then we would have ischwala for uh, lunch and then we would also have it for dinner. So for lunch, you probably wouldn't want to have meat or something that's heavy so you can mix it with some milk or for dinner. You could have, like I said, the vegetables, different types of vegetables. We're talking mixed vegetables, or you can have collard greens, or you can have mm-hmm. cabbage and a side of meat. And the meat could be anything from beef to stewed chicken to fish to pork to whatever you name it. 
Um, so that was sort of what we used to eat back home. And then when we came to the U.S., we kind of had to adapt, right? So the same quality of ischala or cornmeal that we would get back home, we weren't able to get here. So we had to go out to, you know, the Spanish supermarkets and the different sort of, um, I don't want to call them ethnic places, but the the, the stores that cater specialty to, stores, specialty stores. Yeah. yeah. That, that cater to, to immigrants from other countries. And then we started, you know, finding the cornmeal and creating it and cooking at home. And that's just something that's always been a constant. Like if you go to my mom's house in Indiana, I try to tell her you can't eat it every single day. I don't think it's good for you every single day, <laughs> but she cooks this chala at least three times a week. And it's just a, a bonding experience with my friends that are from America, introducing them to my culture, the way that we cook it. You know, it's a very interesting process. I kind of truncated it, but the process is really interesting. The way that you get it to kind of like really get hot and it kind of, it's almost like a little volcano in there. Um, oh and so it's, it's very, very interesting the way that we cook it. So that's like my earliest food mm. memory. And that's where a lot of memories around food are built. That's amazing. Well, that'll be our next task, Mako, is for you to make yeah. that for me because that sounds so cool. And I'm always so fascinated to learn about how different cultures kind of prepare their staple you. dishes. So that's up next. Yes. <laughs> um, it soon. sounds like polenta. It sounds like... It is. Mm -hmm. So it's similar to polenta, but I think polenta is a little bit softer. This okay. is a little bit firmer. Mm -hmm. um, it's not quite as soft. So I think polenta is more almost like porridge, right? Like a thicker version Sometimes, of porridge. It depends on Sometimes, how you prepare yeah. it. Sometimes it, like, yeah. you can prepare polenta so that it's sliceable. Mm -hmm. that's what it is it's like sliceable like that and of course you use your hands to eat it i mean some people use forks but you know we kind of judge that you can you can eat it however you want but i think the hand you really get the full experience when you use your hands to eat it yeah so you're gonna do it traditional room temperature or you yes. eat it hot or oh right okay because it's so hot when you cook mm -hmm. it so you have to let it kind of cool down for a little bit and then you eat it at room temperature. And when it gets cold, it's, it kind of sticks onto the bottom of the pot. So what we do is we kind of like, um, we scoop it up and put it in aluminum foil so it maintains its shape. Mm. And then it maintains its warmth as well. And then everyone can just kind of pick up the aluminum foil, put it on the plate and eat it with whatever we're serving. Oh, wow. Well, we're learning so much. I love it. Um, Lani, tell mm. us, I know you have uh, quite a story involving your foray into baking and, you know, being gluten intolerant. And I'm sure that was kind of a hurdle for you to get over, you know, being in the culinary world and, you know, having so many foods that you couldn't eat, unfortunately. So tell us kind of your story with baking and starting your business. And I know a lot of your, you know, specialty items are very kind of unique and you have a really cool perspective on baking and, you know, culinary endeavors in general. So I'd love to hear about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, wow, that's a that's a heck of an intro. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, um, I guess I've kind of just been, you know, doing my own thing for basically my whole life. Um, nice. I'm really kind of like a super social lone wolf. Oh. And um, I kind of, you know, I trained, I apprenticed as a baker when I was a really young person, about 19, and I learned a great deal from this gentleman who has passed away, but we, he taught me so, so much, and um, I developed a wheat allergy working as a baker, 
and I had to stop eating wheat. And at the time I was a vegetarian and I was consuming a lot of like ersatz meat products, like wheat gluten based seitan and things like that. And so I was consuming a great deal of wheat protein and I was coming in contact with it physically. And I think it was just sort of this combination of environmental exposure and genetic predisposition. I got a wheat allergy, I stopped eating wheat. And I kind of just went from there. I applied my, I studied at, so I kind of had to leave the baking role. I took a little jog and studied holistic medicine and like herbs and this sort of holistic take on how food and herbs can be really health supportive. And I just really immersed myself in that, learned a lot about that. And when I moved to New York, I got a job working at a gluten-free bakery called it was called Baby Cakes at the time. It's called Erin McKenna's Bakery now. Cool. It was downtown on Broom Street. And she was an amazing mentor. She's still an amazing mentor and friend and someone I can reach out to. She's a tremendous businesswoman and a really wonderful person. I left the workforce for about six years. I became a mom. I had a kid. Vets. Uh, Alexa, where I moved to London. So my first kid, right. So I had a kid and when I was 26 and then my husband at the time and I moved to the UK for about four years. I had another kid move back stateside. We were there for about four years, moved back stateside and kind of bopped around a little bit. Um, Started, well, Went to pastry school in like 2013 into 2014, moved back to New York, and I've kind of just been working my butt off ever since. I was a kitchen manager at Ovenly for a while and ran their cake program. I started freelancing while I was working there and kind of just kept going, kept putting one foot in front of the other from there. And all the while, I always baked. I always baked gluten-free at home. I focused my time. Like every time I would go to the grocery store, I would just buy like gluten-free ingredients and then just try and test. There was some resources at the time, but it really was a lot of trial and error. And I had to really familiarize myself with the different kinds of flours that were available. I kept you know, notes all the time when I would experiment with different recipes. And then, you know, these gluten-free flour blends started coming onto the market. And in the UK, they have quite a bit more of those things. They're really keyed into the gluten-free thing. I mean, you can get bread on prescription at the pharmacy. If you're, if you're celiac, if you're diagnosed as celiac, you can, and it's really good too. I had a friend who lived down the block and her husband was celiac and I'd go over for like tea and hang, you know, hang out with the kids and that. And she would make me like tea and toast. And she'd be like, oh, you can have some of Steve's bread. He doesn't barely eat it anyway. And I'd be like, what is this? It's really good. She'd be like, oh, we get it at the pharmacy. They a He pharmacy? gets bread on prescription. And I'm like, seriously? She's like, yeah, he's gluten-free. And, you know, the NHS just gives it him as a prescription. So, wow. yeah. So they, they just, you know, there's lots of like free from stuff in all the grocery stores there. And I really mm-hmm. just kind of got into it. It gave me this pathway of like, okay, you can make gluten-free puff pastry. That is something that exists. You can make gluten-free croissants if you want to keep trying. And I just kind of, I had time. I was a total, like total housewife. I mean, I like made baby food and washed diapers and, oh you God. know, 
my husband had this like high flying job as a record company CEO. And I just was like wow. at home with little babies. So I just spent a lot of time just honing my craft and studying. I'm an autodidactic very much. And I just kept going and kept going. Amazing. Um, and your brick and mortar is a recent foray, correct? Yeah. So it's kind of a little bit confusing I think, so for people. Thank you. Yes. Congratulations. Um, I was so excited to see that. Thank you so much. It's it's kind of a weird setup. And I think that um, people kind of are like, wait, so what is it? So I I share my retail space with another person. So uh, there's a restaurant in Brooklyn in Crown Heights on Bedford and Sterling Ave, 724 Sterling Ave. It's called Ursula. Yes. And it's a New Mexican restaurant run by and owned by a gentleman named Eric C. And I essentially wholesale to him. We'll just kind of frame it like that because mm -hmm. people can kind of get And I have basically a whole shelf, dedicated shelf in the pastry case, and I can kind of just do whatever I want. And I, I send over pastry every day. And you can get all your Brutus Bake Shop baked goods there. Um, I just today launched Brutus Bake Shop online. So now we ship nationally and everyone can get all their beautiful Brutus Bake Shop goodies at LonnieHalliday.com forward slash Brutus Bake Shop. Uh, yeah, that's kind of, that's the format. That's amazing. The format. No, I was going to ask you about, you know, obviously a lot of our listeners aren't in the, you know, New York City area. So the fact that you are able to ship nationwide is a huge accomplishment and uh, congratulations on that. I know that is no small feat, but also very exciting for people who want to access your products that aren't in the area. So very, very cool. And I think that's really you know, what you're doing is serving that the audience of people who, you know, want specialty baked goods that are gluten-free and delicious. And uh, wow, very exciting. Yeah. And everything is, the kitchen is gluten-free. So um, I, I'm gluten-free and for the longest time I've served, you know, celiac populations and make I knew that it's always been a goal to, to be able to produce in a kitchen that's gluten-free that, you know, we don't, we don't produce, we're, it's not a shared space. So, you know, we, we really can cater to the folks. I mean, I'm just wheat allergic. I'm not celiac. Right. So, but, you know, to be able to provide that space, it really is like, it feels like very much leveling up for what we can offer people for sure. Amazing. So, Mako, my next question is for you um, as kind of an entertainment guru, fashionista, all the all kinds of things, you know, how, you know, your culture, of course, you know, growing up in Zimbabwe, I'm sure is a huge part of, you know, your day to day. And I just want to talk about, you know, how you weave that into your career as, you know, an on-air correspondent and, you know, fashion expert and lifestyle expert and just want to kind of talk about the way that you weave your culture into your career. Absolutely. First of all, I can't wait to order some of those gluten-free pastries now that I know that they're available online. Like, Me too. like, dang, I have to get in an Uber and go all the way to the yeah. other part of Brooklyn. But now, oh, okay. It's going down. It's going down. Now, my husband and I love pastries. Yeah. COVID like, red. Tea? Oh, yes. oh, my gosh. It's so good. Okay. So how do I weave uh, my culture? Well, I think we have to look at where I started in terms of my entertainment career. Um, when I first started out, people from back home were honestly some of my biggest supporters, right? So they mm -hmm. would really cheer me on. They would plug me into other opportunities. So for instance, 
Um, when I was here living in New York, I would, I'm very much in tune with what's happening back home. So I would write for this blog called, that was called Just Curious at the time. It's no longer around, but it was one of the biggest entertainment blogs in South Africa. They had an opportunity to cover the red carpet awards for the MTV awards in LA. And they called me up and they were like, listen, we want you to do this and, you know, cover the awards. And my perspective is from the first time that I was on that stage, not on the stage, haven't been on the MTV stage yet, <laughs> but on the red carpet was to make sure that I always represent uh, myself and I represent my culture. And ultimately, I try to uh, represent the continent. I know that the, the continent is not a country, but I really try and put that um, to, to be the first thing that I want people to see when they meet me. And what does that look like? That looks like when I go out on the carpet or if I'm interviewing a celebrity, I try and get little nuggets for that audience member who might be back home or who might be in the diaspora, who, uh, you know, wants to have that sense of, okay, this girl is the girl next door. She's sharing some information about who we are, or she's asking the question that I've always wanted to know about this particular celebrity, you know, as a person who's from back home. So that's one of the ways that I do that. But if I'm like, um, like the video that I just did, I think you saw this on my Instagram page. Yes. As I'm going in my career and doing the lifestyle thing, um, I, ha I have so many talents and so many things that I'm passionate about. Like entertainment is one big pillar in my life. I love entertainment and I love all kind of uh, spectrums of entertainment, whether it's like Hollywood or African entertainment or, you know, K-pop, whatever it is. I love global entertainment culture. But another pillar another passion point for me is creating my own content right i think those things can exist on on um can exist at the same time Definitely. and one of the things that i want to do is share the food that we eat and share our culture and share inspirational stories so i'm my my goal really is to do both right to work in spaces where i can represent uh for people back home but i can also share my culture with new ears new uh people that are hearing it or seeing it for the first time but also give people a sense of like nostalgia, people that might be in the diaspora to let them know that we also have this really cool culture that we're brewing here, but we're still kind of connected to home. So I hope that makes sense. But that's yes. essentially how I try to bring my culture forward in everything I do. No, that is a fantastic answer. And I've decided that the title of your memoir is going to be the, the Zimbabwean Girl Next Door. So I love that. <laughs> right now yeah you said that I was like oh my gosh that's amazing <laughs> I love that yeah. no and that's super cool especially when you are you know I think that a lot of people have you know misconceptions or haven't traveled to Africa or don't know you know the the variances between the different countries there and I think that you kind of putting a spotlight on the different cultures that are from within the continent and kind of bringing light to those voices is an amazing thing to do and we are all grateful for the education, Mako. It's my life's work. And I'll tell you, in the very beginning, I used to get super annoyed, right? Because I would get like really silly questions like, you know, um, were you guys wearing clothes in Africa? How did you get here? Who's the president of Africa? So stuff like that used to really get under my skin. But yeah. then now, you know, after living here for so long, I understand that for the most part, for some people, it is just purely ignorance and they're they're just going to continue to try to perpetuate those stereotypes. But there are some people that this is an opportunity to learn and this is an opportunity to show people a completely different lens of what they view 
African culture, Southern African culture, specifically Zimbabwean culture to be. It's so varied and diverse. I love what Lani said earlier in terms of the fact that we were colonized by the British, right? So a lot of our food choices are kind of informed by the British. Like when I say tea and scones, like I mean that we have tea and scones, Mm -hmm. you know, which is a very British thing, but because we were colonized, we do a lot of those things. You know, we, a lot of that influence is still felt today, but our culture is just so vast. We have our own Zimbabwean culture. So it's, it's truly is an honor to get to share that with people. And even my name, we were talking about my name before this call. Yes. You know, that's a way that I weave my culture into my job is just like, just by saying my name, it, it becomes a conversation starter. Can you pronounce it correctly for us? Because I'm sure I didn't do that great of a job. <laughs> you actually did great. So what I have okay. determined now is that there's going to be an American way to say it. And there's going to be the way to say it from back home because the, so the NDL make a sound together and that sound is oh so it's actually Mzovu. Mako oh gosh Mzovu. yeah i see? can't so Ooh. exactly you could do it if we had time we could work on but it but honestly i think there's probably one or two people that have actually been able to say my name correctly so i'm like you know what you know it's can fine. you say it's the whole thing your first and last name yeah so my first name is makosazana right okay. which means an unmarried princess Ooh. And my last name means Njovu. Uh, my last name is Njovu, which coincidentally means elephant. We were grouped by, our tribes were grouped by, our clan names were grouped by animals. So wow. unmarried princess elephant. Is oh my gosh. I never knew that about you. I'm so happy I asked. That's such a fun little like tidbit. And yes, you are a princess, married or unmarried. <laughs> Exactly. Do you want to know something, Mako? First, firstly, I was completely engrossed listening to you. And the the thread I heard through all of that was joy and service. And it Mm. sounds like joy and service are just all over everything that you do. And I just absolutely love that. Um, And that's definitely a, a thread that that weaves through what I do as well. And I can totally relate. And I my name, my full name is actually Nohealani. Nohealani is my first name. Oh, it's a Hawaiian name. It actually beautiful. means that is beautiful. Heavenly princess. Heavenly so the, princess, you said? Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Look at these princesses. <laughs> I have two princesses. princesses. Yeah. <laughs> this is beautiful. Oh my God. Wow. That's, so cool. that's such a beautiful name. That is really, really beautiful. I'm so happy that I know both of your full names now. I feel like I've gotten to a new level. <laughs> right. Yes. I'm tapped a new, a new level here. Amazing. Everyone, everyone's called me Lonnie since I was a kid, except for yeah. my father. He calls me Nohea, but oh. everyone else calls me Lonnie. Lonnie is like a very common like uh it's part of it's usually like it's a comp it's part of a compound name so it's like you get lots of kailani and pualani yeah and leilani and my name is nohailani you don't frequently hear lani just on its own yeah um but yeah wow good to know This episode is brought to you by Levo, the world's most intelligent at-home infuser. It's super easy to use to make infusions for cooking, candies, cosmetics, and herbal medicines. When the box showed up, I was excited to try it out as I've heard good things about the machine. It looks like a space-age coffee maker on the counter, and having it out makes me want to infuse everything. I've got plans for the hot peppers on my counter and the sage I picked from the garden before the first freeze last week, along with some other choice herbs and spices. 
I think everyone on my list is going to get infused oils this year. So far, I've used it for cannabis, basil, and orange peel infused oils and butter. The machine even has dry and activate functions for the highest potency and stability in your infusions. And you can connect through Wi-Fi to track your progress and record your recipes and share with the Levo community. Learn more at levooil.com. That's L-E-V-O-O-I-L.com. Well, Lonnie, I meant to ask you before, but I would love for you to kind of rattle off some of your creations. I know your Pop-Tarts are incredibly popular and they're very like, so Lonnie's dishes are all very like, this isn't just like strawberry shortcake. Like these are very like cool, flavorful creations. So I'd love to hear about those. And then also if you could kind of talk about, you know, we have to talk about, you know, COVID impacts and obviously starting a business and being a small business owner during this time has been dicey so those are the two things that i would love you to touch on if you don't mind no yeah that's um that's great i um so i i'll tell you what my current menu is um at the moment online you can order two different kinds of pop tarts i've got a guava passion fruit pop tart which is guava filling and a passion fruit glaze the dough that I use that I the recipe I created for that it's happened everything I do is gluten-free a lot of what I do is vegan that is a gluten-free vegan guava passion fruit pop tart it's got these super fun sprinkles on top aka a miracle a a (laughs) gluten-free vegan guava passion fruit pop tart (laughs) I meditated on that pie dough I I manifested that in my mind's eye for a very long time oh my gosh um the Chocolate maple cardamom pop tart is the oh. other pop tart that's available. Also vegan. I make it with Braca chocolate, which is this very high end, beautiful chocolate that I get uh, in Red Hook, Brooklyn. It is chocolate, a couple different kinds of Braca chocolate, cardamom, uh, maple syrup, and yeah, also lush, also vegan, also gluten free. I've got the miso chocolate chip cookie, which is probably my best selling thing. It is also gluten free, vegan, soy free. It is made with chickpea miso. It's like rich and salty with some malden sea salt on top and they're gigantic cookies. And I would say the last thing that you can get at the moment on my website is the spice ginger molasses cookies. And they're just like these Mm. beautiful, gigantic, as big as your face, like They've got turbinado sugar on them. They're super crinkly and craggy and moist and in the middle and crispy on the edges and nice and spicy. And yeah, so those are the, those, those are my oh current. My mouth God. is watering. Yeah. So when she gets, last one, when she gets bought out, she's about to get two very large orders. It's me and Mako. Yes, <laughs> totally. Um, yeah, so, uh, and then what was the other part of the question? I got really um, wrapped up in that. No, thing. yeah, I was very wrapped up too. I was like, <laughs> um, yes, I was wondering about kind of like being a small business owner during oh. COVID. Yeah, so I mean, I was doing my thing freelancing before the shutdown. I was renting space in, um, from also from Eric C. He shut his last company down called The Awkward Scone, it was in Bushwick on like Willoughby and Broadway in Brooklyn. And I was renting space from him, just freelancing, making cakes. I had a catering company doing like event production in the city for a long time. And then the as soon as the virus shut, I was actually working on this super beautiful, like super successful, like sold out pop-up dinner series at the Maid Hotel yes. in the city. 
and it was a communal eating experience. So we definitely shut that down at the beginning of COVID. Oh. And we just had to pivot. And yeah, that was like step one. On, um, I really just worked on sort of mutual aid stuff. I didn't know what to do. And um, service has always been a really big part of my life. And, you know, we were on food stamps when I was a kid. We ate with, uh, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the gleaners in this country. Um, they're basically no. like a food, a food um, like recapturing citizens where they sort of like um, kind of if like there's a bunch of produce at a grocery store, you know, they'll go and get it and collect it and kind of distribute it to people in their communities. So working in service around food and food equity and food sovereignty to a degree has always kind of been part of what I do and just service in general service. Um, I worked at Planned Parenthood for the longest and I, I we kind of just like switched immediately into this mode of service. And we worked with an organization called FIG here in Brooklyn. That's just like a community led organization around feeding people. So we were packing grocery bags and cooking food and sending those out every week. We kind of just did that for the longest. And we just, we didn't really know what we were going to do. I did that for about three months straight, like not really knowing what was going to come next. And then we, the place that I was working out of ended up closing, not because of COVID, but because the, they were sort of limping along. The business was okay, but the business partners decided to end at their business. And so I kind of just had to think about what was next. And basically Eric C and I were going to open a place and share space. And he opened Ursula. And in about a week, we realized that that just wasn't <laughs> going to be feasible. The place is way too small. Um, we were both way too big in terms of like what we needed to do. And we just, we, the place didn't have the bandwidth to hold us. And I just sort of went, I'm just going to get a production space and sell stuff online. Right. And within a few weeks, I moved in. Oh. <laughs> um, it was really funny. I also like suffer really much from like anxiety. I've, I've had anxiety attacks and, and like, you know, all these things. And it was That's really funny. I, I, it was a really big deal for me to sign the lease on this thing. And my friend was like, oh, um, you know, I'm so proud of you. Like you did that. And like, that's amazing. Like, congratulations. And he was like, were you afraid? And I was like, no. Wow. My friend broke up with me a week, the week I signed the lease of this place. And I was so sad and emotionally depleted that I was like, there's no bandwidth to be sad. Wow. <laughs> or, or like scared or fearful. Like I just, I just glossed over the part where I was like, freaked out about signing the lease I was just like oh it's fine I'll just do that and I just Ooh. like in here like under you know like a mask full of tears and oh. the whole nine yards and we've just been like I've just been like putting one foot in front of the other and just being like sorry everyone like thanks for bearing with but um, time for you to kill it yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so, it's the time um, you know but but really being with you know being with reality, the reality is that the world has changed. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is that opportunities have changed. And the reality is, is that my industry ha has been so deeply impacted. We don't know, you know, I've known so many people who've lost their restaurants, who've lost their livelihoods, who don't know what's coming next. I mean, it, our, it, our 
the industry has been incredibly impacted. I mean, yeah. I can't understate it. And to be able to move and pivot and, and, you know, for the longest, I just lamented my journey, you know, for the longest, when I was at home, I would think, Oh, my peers are doing all these things. And, you know, yeah, I, 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 my career is on hold. And, you know, I felt very much when I got back into the workforce that I had to scramble to catch up. And I had a really hard time just accepting that my time would unfold in my time. And, you know, just that like my higher powers plan for me would unfold as it should. And, you know, being in this moment where I get to see, to be in bloom inside of this moment has been such a blessing, multitude of blessings, not least of all, because I get to see that I get to just trust my path and I, and that's well and good. And I don't, there's no need to compare or there's no need to worry or there's no need one just must keep putting one's foot in front of the other and and doing what they need to do and i mean i also like work my ass off oh I mean, yeah I, i'm the person who will work you know 14 16 hour days oh my gosh for weeks on end you know it's it's not as if i just sort of pollyanna'd my way into where i am at this moment i i i work very very hard i've been blessed with a physical constitution that allows me to just work in that way. Yeah. And, um, yeah. I mean, well, that's amazing so advice for everybody. I mean, it's, yeah. I think everybody can relate to what you explained about comparing yourself to others during this time and feeling like your momentum and, you know, path is on hold based on the state of the world and just feeling like, you know, you are going to have to play so much catch up. So it's, I think that advice really holds true for, you know, anybody in whatever industry you're in. And it's really inspiring to hear kind of how you got through that. And I just feel like all, we can all do it now. I'm like, we can, we're good to go. Like Lonnie's words of inspiration. I'm ready. Um, Mako, I kind of have the same question for you because yeah. obviously being an entertainment correspondent, turning all of that into remote has got to be, uh, I mean, we talked about this a bit earlier, a very in-depth and a bit of a crazy process. So give us a little taste of what your life is as an on-air correspondent from home. Yeah, my my life is uh, crazy, but I absolutely love it. I love um, just listening to what Lonnie was saying is so inspiring. And I think you're right. It can apply to anybody. It doesn't matter what field or industry you want to get into or what you want to pivot to. Trusting the process and just believing and working hard will take you places that, you know, even your wildest imagination couldn't really foresee. And so for me, the big thing as well, just like Lonnie's, I had to pivot, right? And the, I remember when we went to the studio, the last time I was actually in studio was March, right? Yeah. I think it was March 15th. And it was like, oh, we're just trying to figure it out. And I heard rumors that we'll be back in two weeks. And then all of a sudden, two weeks turned into like nine months, right? Yeah. It turned into the longest period. But Somewhere around, I think it was like around the summer or in the spring, we started to say, okay, we're going to start remote streaming and filming at home. So the job that maybe 10 people did, I now had to do uh, for myself at home. That means mm -hmm. hair and makeup. That means setting up the set at home. Like there's people. Lights. That's their job. Lights. Yeah. Audio. My okay, Camera. My my husband quickly had to be the shipping and receiving department and he also had to be the production staff. So, you know, that was, that was difficult, 
But I'm so grateful that I have him because it really made it a, a lot easier. I can't imagine how people are doing this on their own, especially when you're in a very dynamic situation where you're hosting a live show on a huge platform. Anything mm -hmm. can happen. My tablet dies. My AirPods die. Like mm -hmm. anything can happen. So you always have to be nimble and flexible. Um, so I think for me, I realized that this is all temporary. It's not going to be like this for very long, but I'm just really grateful to be working during a pandemic. I was listening yeah. to a podcast this morning um, and they were talking about the fact that people are buying more goods. Um, approximately half the jobs have been recovered back into the economy, but a lot of the jobs that are going to suffer are like the service industry jobs. So it's really inspiring to hear these journeys. Like Lonnie saying, I had to pivot. I'm doing my own thing. I'm working online, you know, is that we all have had to pivot and we've all have had to make changes. And I think that's the only way that we're truly going to bounce back once this thing is, is behind us. Right. But in this moment, I think this is a great moment to be reflective um, it definitely made me pause for a little bit and think about where am I going in life? Am I happy with where I'm at? Career-wise, definitely happy. But again, I created this food project that you saw on my Instagram page from the pandemic. It was kind of like, okay, you have these jobs where you create content for other people, but what's the one thing that you're passionate about that you aren't doing that you should be doing? There's a couple of things that are on that list, but at the very top of that was like creating my own content, sharing my culture. And so for me, it's been a moment of like growth and reflection and just like, you know what, we're going to make it just take one, one day at a time. Every day presents us new challenges, but we're going to make it and just really maintaining that sense of calm. Amazing. Well, both of you are making me feel better about everything. <laughs> Very optimistic oh, and inspiring stories. Um, I have one last question for both of you, and I will start with you, Mako. Um, yeah. What does being a black woman in entertainment mean to you? Kind of circling this back to the culture and the fact that we are, you know, spotlighting black women yeah. in entertainment and food. I mean, what does it mean to you? I mean, it means a lot. I think for me, it, it adds a, an interesting layer because like I said, I was born in Zimbabwe and the fact that my mom uh, moved us here and really wanted us to create our own lives and, and really fulfill our dreams means that I really don't have the chance or the bandwidth or the opportunity to, to lose, right? It means that I put my all in everything because I've realized that not only am I doing it for myself, because as, you know, as we've talked about, I'm very passionate about all the things that I'm doing, but I also represent my mom. I represent my family. I represent people that are watching me back home and I have this this shot to really make something special and really fulfill my dream so I'm not going to mess that up you know so I always carry that responsibility and although it may feel like a sort of like a burden it's actually not it, it, it inspires me to work harder because I see how far I've come so every year we actually go back home and it gives me just a chance to tap in and reconnect you know hear people speaking our language eat the food there, reconnect with uh, family members that I haven't seen in a long time, immerse myself in the local culture. And that's really important because that gives me the why. When I get back out into the world, it gives me the why of why I'm here and what my goal is to accomplish. But you know, when people see me, they don't know that I'm African. They just see me as a black woman. And I think being a black woman is very, very interesting because you see all these protests and what's happening with George Floyd. And I think we are at a turning point as a country but then there's still a lot more work that needs to be done, right? You understand that these conversations are just conversations 
And, you know, without the actual work to change things, things won't change. So I'm very inspired by the young people that are coming up and, you know, really speaking out and challenging their parents. And I think they are the future. So I say all that to say that it's a very interesting place to be um, as a black woman in entertainment. I understand that there is uh, not a lot of us in this spot. And so my job is to just always represent us and represent us well, because I know that there are a lot of people that are watching. Amazing. And then, Lonnie, I have the same question for you, but instead of entertainment, it would be food. Well, I guess you're sort of entertainment, too, but you know what I mean. <laughs> oh, um, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think that, you know, I've said for the longest that Black women in the United States, because of our history and our sort of like you know, social positioning or however you want to describe it, I think that we are very specifically poised to lead with a depth of compassion and empathy and a holistic view of what it means to be a human being. I think that we have a rich history in this country specifically as you know, for for me, the, the flavor of Black woman that I am, I come from people who got here through the transatlantic slave trade. Not every Black woman in the United States, that's, that's their roots, that's their history, right? Like, not everyone shares that, but a lot of Black women here do. And, you know, that's, those are my roots. And, you know, as you dive into that history, the richness of the the things that are carried literally through, down through the, the DNA, the good and the bad, there's so much bad and there's so much good. And to be able to carry that with me through, you know, my ancestors' prayers and my connection to my family. I mean, I had the most beautiful opportunity this year to begin working on a short film around uh, that focusing a documentary focusing on food sovereignty in the deep south because my people you know i have an uncle who farms and he feeds people and he's been doing that since the beginning of the pandemic because you know in the rural south people have been hit hard and and just seeing the beauty in that and understanding that that's a story that needs to be told i think is a gift that is given to me by virtue of the black female and femme experience in the united states and I mean, you know, it's, it feels like a, such an incredible blessing to be born a black woman in the United States. And yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if that answers your question. Maybe no, it does. it does. No, that was, I, I knew you were going to have an amazing answer. So <laughs> you did not disappoint at all. Um, well, both of you, that was so amazing, so inspiring, so informative. And for anybody listening, I hope you, you know, walk away from hearing these, you know, fantastic, inspiring women and, you know, kind of with a pep in your step and, you know, will to keep pushing with whatever you're pushing with, because clearly, you know, it can be done with the right amount of hard work and, you know, good intentions and just, yeah, you guys, like I said, I'm so inspired by both of you and, you know, just amazed by everything that you have both been able to accomplish in your careers and as, you know, just people, just great, great human beings, which I'm, I'm very lucky and feel very blessed to know both of you. So 
very much so appreciate you. you. (laughs) Oh my God, this was so great. And wait, while we're talking about inspirational Black women, I just have to add that this super inspirational Black woman, uh, Kamala Harris. Oh, I hope that as she's in the White House, since this is a food uh, podcast, that we get to hear, we get to get some Jamaican food in there. We get some Indian, South Asian food. I can't wait until that happens. Yes. Yeah, that'll be like (laughs) like how Michelle Obama, um, you know, have gardening and you know fresh food initiative. Kamala can get Mm -hmm. us going with like some you know some Southern food and some Jamaican food. And some curry goat. Give me some oxtail. Okay, (laughs) make that happen. Let's let's get that going. That'll be her first order of duty. Well, that was amazing. Thank you guys so much. I'm going to read the outro, but Jess, I totally realized that I forgot to read the commercial break thing. So I will do that right before. And I apologize that you'll have to edit that. But um, yeah, I think both of you, um, I'm good with you. Just stay on for a moment and I will read the commercial break thing and then the outro thing. And then we can jump off. So here we go. Okay. All right, everybody. We'll be right. (laughs) Try it again. All right, everybody. We'll be right back. We're going to take a quick break from our sponsors. And now the outro, Jess. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about the food and drink discovery platform that is The Feed Feed, head to thefeedfeed.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Feed Feed and please follow today's guests as well. If you have a food story to tell us or want us to interview a blogger, cookbook author, chef, or restaurateur about a specific country or region and its cuisine, we'd love your suggestions. Just send us a DM on Instagram. See you next time. The Feed Feed is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.